Chapter 4, Parts 6, 7, 8, and 9 of War in the Air. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. War in the Air by H. G. Wells. Chapter 4, Parts 6, 7, 8, and 9. Part 6. The Hockgeboren Graf von Winterfeld was also a light sleeper that night, but then he was one of these people who sleep little and play chess problems in their head to while away the time. And that night he had a particularly difficult problem to solve. He came in upon Bert while he was still in bed in the glow of the sunlight reflected from the North Sea below. Consuming the rolls and coffee, a soldier had brought him. He had a portfolio under his arm, and in the clear early morning light, his dingy gray hair and heavy silver-rimmed spectacles made him look almost benevolent. He spoke English fluently, but with a strong German flavor. He was particularly bad with his B's, and his T-H's softened toward weak Z-D's. He called Bert explosively, Puterage. He began with some indistinct civilities bowed, took a folding table and chair from behind the door, put the former between himself and Bert, sat down on the ladder, coughed dryly, and opened his portfolio. Then he put his elbows on the table, pinched his lower lip with his two forefingers, and regarded Bert disconcertingly with magnified eyes. "'You came to us, Herr Putteridge, against your will,' he said at last. "'How do you make that out?' asked Bert after a pause of astonishment. I judge you by the maps in your car. They were all English, and your provisions. They were all picnic. Also your cords were entangled. You have been tugging, but no good. You could not manage the balloon, and another power than yours brought you to us. Is it not so? Bert thought. Also, where is the lady? Here, what lady? You started with a lady, that is evident. You started for an afternoon excursion, a picnic. A man of your temperament, he would take a lady. She was not with you in your balloon when you came down at Dornhof. No, only her jacket. It is your affair. Still, I am curious. Bert reflected. How do you know that? I judge by the nature of your various provisions. I cannot account, Mr. Putteridge, for the lady, what you have done with her. Nor can I tell why you should wear natured sandals, nor why you should wear such cheap blue clothes. These are outside my instructions. Trifles, perhaps. Officially, they are to be ignored. Ladies come and go. I am a man of the world. I have known wise men wear sandals, and even practiced vegetarian habits. I have known men, or at any rate, I have known chemists, who did not smoke. You have, no doubt, put the lady down somewhere. Well, let us get to business. A higher power. His voice changed its emotional quality. His magnified eyes seemed to dilate. Has brought you and your secret straight to us. So... He bowed his head. 
So be it. It is the destiny of Germany and my prince. I can understand you always carry that secret. You are afraid of robbers and spies. So it comes with you, to us. Mr. Putteridge, Germany will pie it. Will she? She will, said the secretary, looking hard at Bert's abandoned sandals in the corner of the locker. He roused himself, consulted a paper of notes for a moment, and Bert eyed his brown and wrinkled face with expectation and terror. Germany, I am instructed to say, said the secretary, with his eyes on the table and his notes spread out, has always been willing to pie your secret. We have indeed been eager to acquire it, very eager. And it was only the fear that you might be, on patriotic grounds, acting in collusion with your British war office, that has made us discreet in offering for your marvelous invention through intermediaries. We have no hesitation whatever now. I am instructed in agreeing to your proposal of a hundred thousand pounds. Crikey, said Bert, overwhelmed. I beg your pardon? Just a twinge, said Bert, raising his hand to his bandaged head. Ah, also I am instructed to say that as for that noble, unrightly accused lady you have championed so bravely against British hypocrisy and coldness, all the chivalry of Germany is on her sight. Lady? said Bert faintly, and then recalled the great Butteridge love story. Had the old chap also read the letters? He must think him a scorcher if he had. Oh, that's all right, he said. About er, I hadn't any doubt about that. I... He stopped. The secretary certainly had a most appalling stare. It seemed ages before he looked down again. Well, Zileti, as you please, she is your affair. I have performed my instructions, and the title of Paron sat also can be done. It can all be done, Herr Puterage. He drummed on the table for a second or so, and resumed... I have to tell you, sir, that you come to us at a crisis in Welt politic. There can be no harm now for me to put our plans before you. Before you leave this ship again, they will be manifest to all the world. War is perhaps already declared. We go to America. Our fleet will descend out of the air upon the United States. It is a country quite unprepared for war everywhere. Everywhere. They have always relied on the Atlantic and their navy. We have selected a certain point. It is at present the secret of our commanders, which we shall seize, and then we shall establish a depot, a sort of inland Gibraltar. It will be, what will it be? An eagle's nest. There our airships will gather and repair, and thence they will fly to and fro, offers the United States, terrorizing cities, dominating Washington, levying what is necessary until the terms we dictate are accepted. You follow me? Go on, said Bert. We could have done all this with such Luftschiffe and Drachenflieger as we possess, but the accession of your machine renders our project complete. It not only gives us a better Drachenflieger, but it removes our last uneasiness as to Great Britain. 
without you sir great britain the land you loved so well and that has requited you so ill that land of pharisees and reptiles can be nozzing nozzing you see i am perfectly frank with you well i am instructed that germany recognizes all this we want you to place yourself at our disposal we want you to become our chief head flight engineer we want you to manufacture we want to equip a swarm of hornets under your direction we want you to direct this force and it is at our depot in america we want you so we offer you simply and without haggling the full terms you demanded weeks ago one hundred thousand pounds in cash a salary of three thousand pounds a year a pension of one thousand pounds a year and the title of parone as you desired these are my instructions he resumed his scrutiny of bert's face that's all right of course said bert a little short of breath but otherwise resolute and calm and it seemed to him that now was the time to bring his nocturnal scheming to the issue the secretary contemplated bert's collar with sustained attention only for one moment did his gaze move to the sandals and back just let me think a bit said bert finding the stare debilitating look here he said at last with an air of great explicitness i got the secret yes but i don't want the name of butteridge to appear see i've been thinking that over a little delicacy exactly you buy the secret leastwise i give it to you from bearer see his voice failed him a little and the stare continued i want to do the thing anonymously see still staring bert drifted on like a swimmer caught by a current fact is i'm going to adopt the name of smallways i don't want no title of baron i've altered my mind and i want the money quiet like i want a hundred thousand pounds paid into banks thirty thousand into the london and county bank branch at bunhill in kent directly i and over the plans twenty thousand into the bank of england arf the rest into a good french bank the other arf the german national bank see i want it put there right away i don't want it put in the name of butteridge i want it put in the name of albert peter smallways that's the name i'm going to adopt that's condition one go on said the secretary the next condition said bert is that you don't make any inquiries as to title i mean what english gentlemen do when they sell or let you land you don't arst ow i got it see ere i am i deliver you the goods that's all right some people have the cheek to say this isn't my invention see it is you know that's all right but i don't want that gone into i want a fair and square agreement saying that's all right see his c faded into a profound silence the secretary sighed at last leant back in his chair and produced a toothpick and used it to assist his meditation on bert's case what was that name he asked at last putting away the toothpick i must write it down albert peter smallways said bert in a mild tone the secretary wrote it down 
after a little difficulty about the spelling because of the different names of the letters of the alphabet in the two languages. "'And now, Mr. Schmalweis,' he said at last, leaning back and resuming the stare, "'tell me, how did you get hold of Mr. Potteridge's balloon?' Part 7 When at last the Graf von Winterfold left Bert Smallways, he left him in an extremely deflated condition, with all his little story told. He had, as people say, made a clean breast of it. He had been pursued into details. He had had to explain the blue suit, the sandals, the desert dervishes, everything. For a time, scientific zeal consumed the secretary, and the question of the plans remained in suspense. He even went into speculation about the previous occupants of the balloon. I suppose, he said, the lady was the lady, but that is not our affair. It is very curious and amusing, yes, but I am afraid the prince may be annoyed. He acted with his usual decision, always he acts with wonderful decision, like Napoleon. Directly he was told of your descent into the camp at Dornhof, he said, Bring him! Bring him! It is my star! His star of destiny! You see? He will be thwarted. He directed you to come as Herr Potteridge, and you have not done so. You have tried, of course, but it has been a poor try. His judgments of men are very just and right, and it is better for men to act up to them, completely, especially now, particularly now. He resumed that attitude of his, with his underlip pinched between his forefingers. He spoke almost confidentially. It will be awkward. I tried to suggest some doubt, but I was overruled. The prince does not listen. He is impatient in the high air. Perhaps he will think his star has been making a fool of him. Perhaps he will think I have been making a fool of him. He wrinkled his forehead and drew in the corners of his mouth. I got the plans, said Bert. Yes, there is that. Yes. But you see, the prince was interested in Herr Puteridge because of his romantic zeit. Herr Puteridge was so much more, ah, uh, in the picture. I am afraid you are not equal to controlling the flying machine department of our aerial park as he wished you to do. He had promised himself that. And there was also the prestige, the world prestige of Puteridge with us. Well, we must see what we can do. He held out his hand. Give me the plans. A terrible chill ran through the being of Mr. Smallways. To this day, he is not clear in his mind whether he wept or no, but certainly there was weeping in his voice. Air, I say, he protested. Ain't I to have nothing for him? The secretary regarded him with benevolent eyes. You do not deserve any zing, he said. I might have tore him up. They are not yours. They weren't Butteridge's. No need to pay anything. Bert's being seemed to tighten towards desperate deeds. Gah, he said, clutching his coat. Ain't there? Be calm, said the secretary. Listen, you shall have five hundred pounds. You shall have it on my promise. I will do that for you, and that is all I can do. Take it from me. Give me the name of that bank. Write it down. So. 
I tell you the prince is no choke. I do not think he approved of your appearance last night. No, I can't answer for him. He wanted Puderage, and you have spoilt it. The prince, I do not understand quite, he is in a strange state. It is the excitement of the starting and this great soaring in the air. I cannot account for what he does. But if all goes well, I will see to it. You shall have five hundred pounds. Will that do? Then give me the plans. Old beggar, said Bert, as the door clicked. Gah, what an old beggar! Sharp! He sat down in the folding chair and whistled noiselessly for a time. Nice old swindle for him if I tore him up. I could have. He rubbed the bridge of his nose thoughtfully. I gave the whole blessed show away. If I'd just keep quiet about being anonymous. Gah! Too soon, Bert, my boy. Too soon and too rushy. I'd like to kick my silly self. I couldn't have kept that up. After all, it ain't so very bad, he said. After all, five hundred pounds? It isn't my secret anyhow. It's just a pickup on the road. Five hundred. Wonder what the fare is from America back home. Part 8 And later in the day, an extremely shattered and disorganized Bert Smallways stood in the presence of the Prince Karl Albert. The proceedings were in German. The Prince was in his own cabin, the end room of the airship, a charming apartment furnished in wicker work with a long window across its entire breadth looking forward. He was sitting at a folding table of green bays with von Winterfeld and two officers sitting beside him, and littered before them was a number of American maps and Mr. Butteridge's letters and his portfolio and a number of loose papers. Bert was not asked to sit down and remained standing throughout the interview. Von Winterfeld told his story, and every now and then the words balloon and puterage struck on Bert's ears. The prince's face remained stern and ominous, and the two officers watched it cautiously or glanced at Bert. There was something a little strange in their scrutiny of the prince, a curiosity, an apprehension. Then, presently, he was struck by an idea, and they fell discussing the plans. The prince asked Bert abruptly in English, "'Did you ever see this thing go up?' Bert jumped. "'Saw it from Bun Il, your royal highness.' Von Winterfeld made some explanation. "'How fast did it go?' "'Couldn't say, Your Royal Highness. The papers, leastways the Daily Courier, said eighty miles an hour.' They talked German over that for a time. "'Could it stand still, up in the air? That is what I want to know.' "'It could hover, Your Royal Highness, like a wasp,' said Bert. "'Feel besser, nicht wahr?' said the prince to von Winterfeld, and then went on in German for a time. Presently they came to an end, and the two officers looked at Bert. One rang a bell, and the portfolio was handed to an attendant, who took it away. Then they reverted to the case of Bert, and it was evident the prince was inclined to be hard with him. Von Winterfeld protested. Apparently theological considerations came in, for there were several mentions of Gott. Some conclusions emerged, and it was apparent that von Winterfeld was instructed to convey them to Bert. 
Mr. Schmalveis, you have obtained a footing in this airship, he said, by disgraceful and systematic lying. Hardly systematic, said Bert. I... The prince silenced him by a gesture. And it is within the power of his highness to dispose of you as a spy. Here, I came to sell... Shh! said one of the officers. However, in consideration of the happy chance that made you the instrument under Gott of this Puterich flying machine reaching his highness's hand, you have been spared. Yes, you were the pearer of good tidings. You will be allowed to remain on this ship until it is convenient to dispose of you. Do you understand? We will bring him, said the prince, and added terribly with a terrible glare, als ballast. You are to come with us, said Winterfeld, as palast. Do you understand? Bert opened his mouth to ask about the five hundred pounds, and then a saving gleam of wisdom silenced him. He met von Winterfeld's eye, and it seemed to him the secretary nodded slightly. Go, said the prince, with a sweep of the great arm and hand towards the door. Bert went out like a leaf before a gale. Part 9 But in between the time when the Graf von Winterfeld had talked to him, and this alarming conference with the prince, Bert had explored the Vaterland from end to end. He had found it interesting in spite of grave preoccupations. Kurt, like the greater number of the men upon the German air fleet, had known hardly anything of aeronautics before his appointment to the new flagship but he was extremely keen upon this wonderful new weapon Germany had assumed so suddenly and dramatically. He showed things to Bert with a boyish eagerness and appreciation. It was as if he showed them over again to himself, like a child showing a new toy. "'Let's go all over the ship,' he said with zest. He pointed out particularly the lightness of everything, the use of exhausted aluminum tubing, of springy cushions inflated with compressed hydrogen, the partitions were hydrogen bags covered with light imitation leather. The very crockery was a light biscuit glazed in a vacuum, and weighed next to nothing. Where strength was needed, there was the new Charlottenburg alloy, German steel as it was called, the toughest and most resistant metal in the world. There was no lack of space. Space did not matter, so long as load did not grow. The habitable part of the ship was two hundred and fifty feet long, and the rooms in two tiers. Above these one could go up into remarkable little white metal turrets with big windows and airtight double doors that enabled one to inspect the vast cavity of the gas chambers. This inside view impressed Bert very much. He had never realized before that an airship was not one simple continuous gas bag containing nothing but gas. Now he saw far above him the backbone of the apparatus and its big ribs. Like the neural and hemocanals, said Kurt, who had dabbled in biology. Rather, said Bert appreciatively, though he had not the ghost of an idea what these phrases meant. Little electric lights could be switched on up there if anything went wrong in the night. There were even ladders across the space. But you can't go into the gas, protested Bert. You can't breathe it. The lieutenant opened a cupboard door and displayed a diver's suit, only that it was made of oiled silk, and both its compressed air knapsack and its helmet were of an alloy of aluminum and some light metal. 
We can go all over the inside netting and stick up bullet holes or leaks, he explained. There's netting inside and out. The whole outer case is rope ladder, so to speak. Aft of the habitable part of the airship was the magazine of explosives, coming near the middle of its length. They were all bombs of various types, mostly in glass. None of the German airships carried any guns at all, except one small pom-pom, to use the old English nickname dating from the Boer War, which was forward of the gallery upon the shield at the heart of the eagle. From the magazine amidships, a covered canvas gallery with aluminum treads on its floor and a hand rope ran back underneath the gas chamber to the engine room at the tail. But along this Bert did not go, and from first to last he never saw the engines. But he went up a ladder against a gale of ventilation, a ladder that was encased in a kind of gas-tight fire escape, and ran right athwart the great forward air chamber of the little lookout gallery with a telephone that gallery that bore the light pom-pom of German steel and its locker of shells. This gallery was all of aluminum-magnesium alloy. The tight front of the airship swelled cliff-like above and below, and the Black Eagle sprawled overwhelmingly gigantic, its extremities all hidden by the bulge of the gas bag. And far down, under the soaring eagles, was England, four thousand feet below, perhaps, and looking very small and defenseless indeed in the morning sunlight. The realization that there was England gave Bert sudden and unexpected qualms of patriotic compunction. He was struck by a quite novel idea. After all, he might have torn up those plans and thrown them away. These people could not have done so very much to him. And even if they did, ought not an Englishman to die for his country? It was an idea that had hitherto been rather smothered up by the cares of a competitive civilization. He became violently depressed. He ought, he perceived, to have seen it in that light before. Why hadn't he seen it in that light before? Indeed, wasn't he a sort of traitor? He wondered how the aerial fleet must look from down there. Tremendous, no doubt, and dwarfing all the buildings. He was passing between Manchester and Liverpool, Kurt told him. A gleaming band across the prospect was a ship canal, and a weltering ditch of shipping far away ahead, the Mercy Estuary. Bert was a southerner. He had never been north of the Midland counties, and the multitude of factories and chimneys, the latter for the most part obsolete and smokeless now, superseded by huge electric generating stations that consumed their own reek old railway viaducts, monorail networks, and goods yards, and the vast areas of dingy homes and narrow streets, spreading aimlessly, struck him as though Camberwell and Rotherhithe had run to seed. Here and there, as if caught in a net, were fields and agricultural fragments. It was a sprawl of undistinguished population. There were, no doubt, museums and town halls and even cathedrals of a sort to mark theoretical centers of municipal and religious organization in this confusion. But Bert could not see them. They did not stand out at all in that wide disorderly vision of congested workers' houses and places to work and shops and meanly conceived chapels and churches. And across this landscape of an industrial civilization swept the shadows of the German airships like a hurrying shoal of fishes. 
Kurt and he fell talking of aerial tactics, and presently went down to the under-gallery in order that Bert might see the Drachenflieger that the airships of the right wing had picked up overnight and were towing behind them, each airship towing three or four. They looked like big box-kites of an exaggerated form, soaring at the ends of invisible cords. They had long, square heads and flattened tails with lateral propellers. Much skill is required for those. Much skill. Rather. Pause. Your machine is different from that, Mr. Butteridge. Quite different, said Bert, more like an insect and less like a bird. And it buzzes, and don't drive about so. What can those things do? Kurt was not very clear upon that himself, and was still explaining when Bert was called to the conference we have recorded with the Prince. And after that was over, the last traces of Butteridge fell from Bert like a garment, and he became small ways to all on board. The soldiers ceased to salute him, and the officers ceased to seem aware of his existence, except Lieutenant Kurt. He was turned out of his nice cabin, and packed in with his belongings to share that of Lieutenant Kurt, whose luck it was to be junior and the bird-headed officer, still swearing slightly, and carrying straps and aluminum boot-trees, and weightless hair-brushes and hand-mirrors, and pomade in his hands, resumed possession. Bert was put in with Kurt, because there was nowhere else for him to lay his bandaged head in that close-packed vessel. He was to mess, he was told, with the men. Kurt came and stood with his legs wide apart, and surveyed him for a moment as he sat despondent in his new quarters. "'What's your real name, then?' said Kurt, who was only imperfectly informed of the new state of affairs. "'Smallways.' "'I thought you were a bit of a fraud, even when I thought you were a butteridge. You're jolly lucky the prince took it calmly. He's a pretty tidy blazer when he's roused. He wouldn't stick a moment at pitching a chap of your sort overboard if he thought fit.' No, they've shoved you on to me, but it's my cabin, you know. I won't forget, said Bert. Kurt left him, and when he came to look about him, the first thing he saw pasted on the padded wall was a reproduction of the great picture by Siegfried Schmalz of the War God, that terrible trampling figure with the Viking helmet and the scarlet cloak, wading through destruction, sword in hand, which had so strong a resemblance to Carl Albert, the prince it was painted to please. End of chapter 4, parts 6, 7, 8, and 9. Recording by William Tomko.